0: Wellness, what on earth does it mean. And why would we need to unpack it? With over 58 million hashtags on Instagram, the topic has really never been more prominent. But, and there is a but here, three in five of us feel that wellness is incredibly confusing. We want to feel healthier, we want to feel happier, but we have no idea what's clickbait and what's genuinely health-enhancing. Who's an expert and who's peddling absolute nonsense? And look, I am right here with you on this. At times, I've also found this world really hard to navigate. So welcome to Wellness Unpacked, our new podcast hosted by me, Ella Mills, author, entrepreneur, and founder of Deliciously Ella. This series aims to do just as it states, Unpack the world of wellness with expert guests. These guests will be sharing with me and with you their three pieces of advice for a better life to feel healthier and happier. This is a show and a conversation that's about progress. It is not about perfection. It's about helping you make small, simple, sustainable changes. And within that, I'm going to be testing out a different wellness trend every single week. Intermittent fasting, celery juice, collagen, ketogenic diets, CBD, you name it, I'll try it. I'll then unpick the trend separating fact from fad with my friend and NHS GP, Dr. Gemma Newman. And together we'll be equipping you with the tools that can genuinely make a difference to your life and well-being and equally helping you potentially put to one side the trends that may make a little bit less different. So, are you ready for episode 13? Our guest this week is epidemiologist Tim Spector, OBE. Tim is a professor at King's College London and one of the 100 most cited scientists in the world. He is truly leading the conversation on gut health. Gut health is obviously such a huge topic right now and he is pioneering this new mindset, this new approach. He is such an exciting man to follow and I'm sure lots of you have come across his work before. He really does have a very revolutionary approach to nutrition which is all focused on gut health and his insight has led him to tackle controversial and deeply embedded topics like calorie counting and diet culture, low fat foods and so on head on. He wants us to throw out all those old ways of looking at food and really just start again. So in this interview we're going to be talking about how we can make food choices that genuinely prioritize our health and our happiness and the significance of humans ability to change and let's be honest we could do with a collective change in our health right now. I think you are going to love it. So Tim, welcome to Wellness Unpacked. It is such a pleasure to see you again. And I'd love to just kickstart the interview with the question we ask everybody. What does wellness mean to you?
1: Wellness really is waking up every morning happy and wanting to get on with the day and trying to look at the positive sides of that day. I think for me that's it's all about incremental happiness in a way and an absence of bad things so that the balance of good is always better than bad.
0: That's such a nice outlook. We've been talking quite a lot about that recently about when the kind of health and wellness industry started it was so fixated on the external on kind of looking for aesthetic results and there has I think been this really positive shift about making it something on how you actually feel on a day-to-day basis but I'm really interested that you said it's about feeling happy and I'm sure we'll talk about this as we go through the episode but how do you see that intersection of your physical health and your mental health?
1: I think they're becoming inseparable in a way as we realise you know from the scientific medical point of view there really is no clear distinction between the two and that we should see ourselves in a much more holistic way and realize that the two are so closely linked, we can't really separate them. We've recently got some interesting insights with the company Zoe doing the first personalized nutrition customers. We were really surprised that the major benefit they found was in their levels of energy and their mood, not in their weight. And so we weren't expecting that. So we initially didn't ask it. And it's partly that The science and the nutrition haven't really asked those questions in the past. So we've been missing a really important part of the equation, I think, which we really need to take on board. And, you know, absolutely now, whenever we do anything, it's got to include things like energy levels and mood as uh, one of the key outcomes. It's not just about your blood pressure and your weight and your image. I think, you know, it's really important what you're feeling inside.
0: Yeah, so it's this more holistic 360 degree look at your total health as opposed to, I think health has often been quite reductive, as you said, as what's your blood pressure or your BMI, for example, and as a standalone, it's not necessarily the best measure of our total well-being. And I was reading in your new book and, and some pieces around it, the fact that you're really keen to to dispel, I think you describe them as woefully outdated myths um, that exist in the health literature and narrative. And obviously one of them is the fact that, you know, we're all the same, so this one diet will work brilliantly for all of us. Are there any other myths that you feel we're kind of quite deeply entrenched with as a society and that we need to let go of the sooner the better?
1: I think the number one entrenched myth after that sort of guideline one, I guess, is the calorie And however many people are now speaking out against calorie counting, it's still pervasive because essentially it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It's not going to let go of it very quickly. And it has huge power and influence over everybody, including governments. And it also suits the food industry massively to be able to quantify their food in a way that totally obscures the quality of the food. And so it becomes the number one overriding way we, particularly in in the US and the UK, look at food. And it's become such a distorted way of assessing food and I think is largely responsible for the fact that we are consuming ever more amounts of ultra-processed foods and getting unhealthier every year because of it. We can all point to the the fact that we're using the calorie counting as a sort of massive disguise. So we don't have to talk about the elephant in the room is actually, what actually is the stuff we're eating? You have 30, 20 ingredients all dressed up and says, oh, it's low calorie, it's only 400 calories. That's marvellous. You know, you can have five of these a day. That's the worst myth. I think all of us need to realise is nonsense. Not that calories don't exist, of course they do, but in practical terms, using them in your day to day life is of virtually no value. That's what I've learnt over the last ten years, and certainly with increasing in sort of intensity over the last uh, six years since writing this book, uh, how it's abused and. How calorie counting regimes for losing weight, they all work for six weeks, and then the body just fights back. And ultimately, people who go through these cycles end up worse off. And we did some studies looking at our twins, identical twins, where one did weight loss, calorie-restricted diets, and the other one didn't. The one who didn't do the dieting actually ended up a lower weight 20 years on than the one who did do it. So the body is telling you something else. And the idea that you can measure food by its calories is complete nonsense and and there's all kinds of other evidence we can go into that I discuss in the book like the ultra-processed food trial where they took identical foods of identical calories and made up a sort of whole food burger and, a, and an ultra-processed food burger, equal taste, equal re- good ratings. And the ultra-processed one made people overeat by about 200 calories in that day, 10% of their intake they kept going back for more compared to the other ones so there was something very different about how that energy was being used by the body.
0: I feel like that leads us on perfectly to your first piece of advice which feels like the pinnacle of all your work which is that everyone should understand they do not and will not ever dine alone you've got millions of microbes eating everything that you eat and that is gonna fundamentally impact your health.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's even trillions of microbes. And, you know, we still don't know all their names and what they do, and realize that it's not just bacteria, but it's viruses that feed off them, it's fungi, it's little parasites, which turn out to be really often healthy for us. So we thought we'd want to get rid of them. And essentially, knowing that you've got this huge community, which is like an extra organ in our bodies, which basically there to produce lots of healthy chemicals to control your immune system, your brain, your metabolism, digest the food, produce vitamins and neurochemicals, and fight aging and cancer. And we want as many diverse ones as possible. So it's absolutely crucial that when we're deciding what to eat, we're thinking of these guys. And that's, that's where I you know, came up with the expression, you know, you'll never dine alone. Because I've made this transition from very crude thinking, as most doctors do about food and its macronutrients, to you know this really sophisticated way of, of trying to feed your own inner garden or your fish tank or your jungle or you know in, in a completely different way. So yeah, I think what I'd love people to do from reading this book is to alter their view of food and get pleasure from the fact that not only is it giving you pleasure, but actually there are other beings that are also benefiting from it. And it's quite a fun way to think of food and should expand people's horizons about what to eat, which, you know, I think we're always struggling to do as people get into ruts and they like to have the same kale salad and and whatever. You know, just say, well, kale salad is great for one particular group of microbes, but think of all the other ones that, you know, just by adding a few other veggies and seeds and, and herbs and things you could encourage, you know. And to me, that's that's the image I, I really want people to think about in food. And I think it's a, it's it's a very positive one.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's incredibly empowering. And I'd love actually to talk about that a bit more and about this fact that I think so many of us feel that our health is out of our hands and things happen to us and whether or not actually... We've got a lot more control to an extent over it than we potentially think or potentially the kind of public narrative is to an extent. But before we get into that, I wonder if we could almost just rewind a second and just give a 101 really of what is it that these microbes do? You know, how do they impact our mental and physical health? Why are they so, so, so important?
1: Well, we're still on a learning journey. What we do know is that there are thousands of different species in our gut, and when you feed them something like fiber, so take your kale, it's foods that reach the lower part of the colon where they live. There are a few up in the upper parts, but we don't think they're nearly as crucial as the ones in our colon. So they, they like food that has fiber because it hasn't already been absorbed and, it, and it's their job to then feed off it and they will attack that fiber, break it down, That's what we call fermenting. So in a way, they are doing the same fermenting job as happens in your yogurt or your kombucha at home. And they break it down into other chemicals. And some of these chemicals are really good for us, we're finding out. So they'll break down fiber. They get the energy out of that plant. They get the polyphenols from it, which are the defense chemicals, which give it their color and their bitter tastes. And it, we've only just recently discovered is the microbes that actually use that for energy. We, we can't use it directly. And they convert that with this energy that allows them to reproduce, get more of them, and then they break more of the fiber down. And they produce other chemicals. For fiber, they produce things called short-chain fatty acids, which are really important for our immune system. So they send out messages to all the immune cells lining our gut to boost it to help its anti-infection defenses, its anti-cancer defenses, its cell repair defenses. And that's really a crucial part of just keeping us alive and keeping our repair processes going. And then there's other ones that will break down foods to produce specific chemicals. So you might eat something that has cheese in it, like tryptophan, and then microbes will break that down into dopamine, and dopamine is a neurotransmitter that gets into the blood and can start to affect the brain cells to change you in your anxiety and depression state and change your mood, and there are hundreds of other examples like that where we're starting to understand how they do work. They make some vitamins, they make some B vitamins that we can't make, for example, They also know they send signals to the brain about appetite as well. And there is one of the current theories about why it takes 20 minutes before you get a signal to your brain that you'll feel full, is that in general it takes 20 minutes for microbes to sense food and basically double in size. And then once they've reached a certain size, then the idea is they send a signal back to the brain to say, okay, we're happy now, you can send a a fullness signal. So it's quite possible that sending the right signals to your gut is important, and that's why whole foods do that, and ultra-processed foods never reach the gut microbes, maybe don't send that those fullness signals down. So we're starting to learn all kinds of things about the microbes, but generally the two things in food they really like, that we know about, are the fibers, which are hundreds of different elements all, all put together, different structures, soluble, insoluble, and everything in between, and... These defence chemicals, these thousands of different chemicals, which we all call together polyphenols, that are like the rocket fuel for these guys.
0: And do you feel, because obviously, as you were saying, this is such a new area of research. Do you feel in a way you're just scratching the surface and another 15 years from now, if we were having the same conversation, you would have even more concrete examples of the power that the microbes have in determining our health?
1: Absolutely. We're we're at the dawn of this. And already we've got clear scientific hard evidence that it works. And we have a few cast iron examples. I'd love to come back. I don't think it'll be 15 years. I think it'll be in five years. I'm going to come back with hundreds of examples showing where we thought food had an effect. We can now prove it. And it's much stronger than pharmaceuticals or anything else like that. And I think that's increasingly being shown that gut microbes are key to how we transform normal medical drugs because if you reduce everything to the idea of it's a chemical you know and they they attack all the chemicals in food why shouldn't they attack all the all the chemicals in in your drugs and depending on your microbes they can have different effects on your body so i think you know we are seeing enormous strides in, in things like cancer therapy now where microbes are absolutely the center of deciding whether people are going to live or die. And I think there are some fields that are really pushing this and where, you know, we can get over that resistance from the traditional group of scientists who are resistant to new ideas, particularly if it involves diet. And I think because it's very scientific, it's got a chance of doing it. It doesn't sound like mumbo jumbo anymore when you use genetic sequencing and you've got Respected scientists saying it. Whereas if you'd said that 10 years ago, oh yes, you know, plants can help you with chemotherapy. No one would listen to you seriously. Whereas now you say they can, you know, double your chance of survival because the microbes are really affecting the immune system, which is really crucial for something like chemotherapy.
0: It's fascinating how much the narrative has changed. I remember when I changed my diet, when I was unwell 10, 11 years ago and I stopped eating ultra-processed foods and that that confused people so much. You know, I remember, you know, very smart people saying, oh, it's all just chemicals, not going to make any difference and it's been absolutely fascinating to see this shift in narrative but I was going to ask you actually on that, it sounds to me very much like it's a kind of paradigm shift, like a real new frontier in medicine, in healthcare but what do you say to all the kind of criticism or backlash, both from the medical field, as you said, the kind of scepticism still that remains of what you eat doesn't really make a difference. And also from the public, I mean, just you obviously sent a link ahead of this conversation, for example, to some Daily Mail articles you'd written in line with the new book about changing your diet, moving away from ultra processed foods. And it just still feels like there's a a lack of will in the narrative to take this on board and almost take that ownership of your health on board
1: yeah well overcoming decades of culture that people don't feel in charge of their health through their food so I think for many people it has to be a sort of revelation moment that you know they've got to read enough of this stuff and you know I do get quite a few of my readers who say yes I get it I've read the books I do understand I've changed my life and my family but what proportion of the population read our books It's very small. you know, And they still go back to their GP and they've been trained like me in, in thinking that really food is a pretty worthless point of discussion when it comes to health. Just take your tablets and go away. So, And you're dealing with the food industry that has massive lobbying power in government to make sure that no one changes the, the message that cheap food is the best way for the population. And we've seen that, you know, the politics of that. So I think in the UK and the US, we are facing an uphill battle to fight our lack of food culture and the food politics, the food companies, the diet industry. And, you know, you've got to be quite strong as an individual to say, I'm gonna, you know, actually do this myself. I'm gonna, you know, it's like you suddenly change religion. And you say, "This does matter." I'm going to take a gut-centric view of the world. You know, whether you're vegan, meat eater, whatever. You say, "Well, I'll forget all that." I'm actually going to. These are the guys I'm going to look after. These are my animals. I'm going to do what's right and ethical for them. And I think that that's quite a big change for for many people. Who you know, just the idea of the calorie. People still get very upset at uh, medical meetings. When I say, you know, calories are rubbish, they say, well, you can't say that. It's it's fact. It's, you know, one of the laws of thermodynamics and all this kind of nonsense. And they're very much stuck. It it reminds me a bit like Galileo's time, you know, when arguing the world was round. But um, I think it's fast moving. And I've seen a change since I wrote my first book in how it's been perceived and how I'm not seen as quite such an outsider, wacko figure now. You know, the good thing about particularly the UK is that the speed at which you can make changes in the supermarket. And who would have predicted five years ago that every supermarket would now have kefir and not only kefir, but you've got kimchi and you've got kombucha in pubs. It's not everywhere in the country, but in London, you can get kombucha in most pubs now. And I just think there is some hope there because by the consumer demanding this stuff, you can change things and not have to wait for governments and uh, the NHS guidelines, etc.
0: And do you think, because I think that analogy about the world being flat and the madness of trying to argue that it wasn't, it's actually a really powerful analogy. It seems to me from where I'm sitting that we've now got this large and ever-growing body of evidence that what you eat and how you treat your body has a fundamental impact on your health and disease etc but there, there's definitely whilst there's fast uptake in some senses there's still frustration you look at food that's served in hospitals it feels like the polar opposite of what's feeding the gut do you feel In the long run, the evidence will just be insurmountable and the guidelines will just have to change. GPs will just have to change. The whole narrative will have to be. Actually, what you eat is fundamental. And we will see this move away from the rise in ultra-process and we will see this return to eating lots of plants, lots of vegetables. That will become our norm again. Or do you think that's just wishful thinking?
1: Well, it's definitely wishful thinking. I'm not convinced that politics is going to change. But I I do think there's a chance that we can change the way supermarkets think and work, I think they'll produce what people want to eat. And I think we've seen that with fermented foods already. So I think we can have more and more products that do help that. I think it is going to be a bottom-up approach. And people will tell their GPs that they're wrong. And people who really don't know anything about nutrition will have to relearn it.
0: Definitely. And I think that leads me on really nicely, actually, to your second piece of advice, which is the only guaranteed investment you can make in your health and happiness is to make the right food choices. And I think that's a really interesting statement in line with what you were just saying, but also the fact that I feel, again, if we're going to look at kind of government guidelines or the traditional narrative, it's always, you know, exercise comes first, for example, you know, if you want to lose weight, exercise, which as you said at the beginning, doesn't actually work, the science isn't there to support that. But I'm curious why you've put forward just food as the main driver for your both the health and the happiness element.
1: I've just come to the realisation that it's probably the number one, you know, yes, you've got exercise, yes, you've got sleep, yes, you've got work, yes, you've got social relationships, sex, every, you know, all these other things that are important. But if you haven't got the food right, you can have the most catastrophic effects. And it's probably the one thing you've got most control of. All these other things can happen or not. Yeah. They're not in your power. And for most of us, not everybody, I realize some, you know, disadvantaged people have very little choice in the food in Western countries. But I think we make hundreds of food choices every week. And that is actually empowering. And at the moment, we're not using that power.
0: There was a stat that came out, it was a YouGov poll a few weeks ago saying 58% of people in the UK do not eat a vegetable every day, which is quite extraordinary.
1: It is, and it just shows how ridiculous, you know, the government's five-a-day policy and the amazing failure of that has been. And I just think this is something that everyone can do. You know, not everyone can get out and run a marathon or it's not easy if you've got young kids to always get you know eight and a half hours sleep for example but everyone should be able to pick the right foods and that would make the whole country happier have more energy and you know, have less less illnesses and disease so yeah i when i was when i was thinking of it i said oh it sounds a bit Arrogant or amazing, but actually, I think it makes a lot of sense.
0: And if people are listening to this and they're thinking, okay, so what are the guidelines, therefore, that I should stick with if I'm thinking about my diet, what's on my plate every day? Are there, say, three to five rules effectively that you say, actually, if we all live by that, we would dramatically increase our chances of good health and longevity?
1: Well, I hate the word rules. Because that makes me sound like I'm, you know, I'm the... Uh, prompt. <laughs>
0: Recommendation. Minister of Health. It's that, true. Uh, and also rules are impossible because I do, and I'm interested in your thoughts, but I do think a kind of daily-ish concept is much more powerful because it's highly unlikely you'd be able to stick to anything all day, every day, 365 days a year. Yeah,
1: no, of course. And I'm, I'm the perfect one who is often failing to meet my own uh, aspirations. But General rules are if you can look after your gut microbes with your diet, then you're halfway there.
0: And what should you be doing on a daily basis more specifically to be nourishing those microbes?
1: My four suggestions would be first try and eat 30 different plants a week. And people go, oh, I can't have 30 types of kale. But a seed is a plant, a nut is a plant. I now count coffee as a plant because it is a fermented plant and actually it's super healthy. Herbs and spices, spice mixes are amazingly good for the gut microbiome. So if you take a very liberal view of what plants are, then it's actually not that hard.
0: One of the questions I always see on that is what constitutes a serving or a portion of one of those 30? Do you have to get that specific or are the microbes just thrilled to get any
1: I think they're thrilled to get any. Uh, we haven't got large enough studies to know about what the minimum amount is. Okay. And so it is to some extent guesswork, particularly when it comes down to herbs and spices. But we do know that the fact that herbs and spices means they're very concentrated in terms mm-hmm. of the chemicals they've got. they always the, you know, the sprouting bit of the plant. It's got most of the polyphenols. So you may need hundreds times less than you do eating the full mature plant. But, for example, a teaspoon of a spice mix every day into food, you know, improved the gut microbes in a in a randomised controlled trial. So, you don't need masses, but you you know you need more than one one grain. Yeah, probably. So, put as much as you can, without it messing up your meal, and clearly, taste is still going to be the main reason. We've got to love food, otherwise, you know. We've lost the plot if we don't really enjoy what we're eating. And experiment. You know, I'm always adding my seed and nut mix to my yoghurts and the breakfast, sticking it on the salads. It's dead easy. And keeping that jar full of interesting every time you see a new nut or a seed you you fill it up. You know, it's actually quite fun to, to find new stuff and add in. They don't have to be expensive one. And that thirty rule is, you know, is a rough one. And then the second point is to try and pick from those 30 the ones that are highest in these defense chemicals, the polyphenols, so the, the bright colors, the bright berries, the bright fruits, the ones with the anthocyanins, the, the blues, the purples, the, the reds, and they often are slightly bitter as well, So, which in recent years we, we've sort of been weaned off by the manufacturers, so we don't like sour or bitter taste. but. Get used to those again, and remember that you know many things like dark chocolate is a very good source of polyphenols. Um, coffee, I mentioned, extra virgin olive oil, you know, the ones really good ones that make you cough and astringent, and also the nuts and the seeds are also really good for that. And then fermented foods regularly. I think that's the the other bit that we, the UK and the US, really don't do well. You know, we have children's yogurts, which should be labelled a health hazard because of the uh, terrible ingredients and lack of any benefit there.
0: I think that's the same goes for the vast majority of children's packaged foods.
1: Yes, no, I don't. If you look at all the healthy countries in the Mediterranean, you know, they don't have children's menus. The children eat what the adults do, and that's why they're healthier. We have to change that culture, which is just to help the manufacturers sell more rubbish to the kids and keep them with a sweet tooth.
0: I was going to say, and presumably also, because that's one of the things I'm really conscious of with my own children, as it sets their preferences and taste buds up for, let's be reductive and call it failure from a very early age.
1: Mm. Well, that's right. It just notches up the threshold of sweetness. And so it's very hard for them to then have the bitter and f- sour taste that are where all the healthy mm. food range is. And even with artificial sweeteners, they still that's still the same problem. And so, yeah, I mean, so fermented foods, but we're talking healthy fermented foods without the sweeteners, the ingredients, the fake fruit, all this other stuff. And it's getting kids and adults to to learn to like it. And you've got the full range there. So, you know, yes, full-fat yogurt. Always have full fat because the fat actually has important nutrients in it. No evidence anywhere that low-fat... Dairy is, is better for you, and most experts now say it's worse, and yet that was the huge con of the last sort of 30 years. And they gave us extra starches and carbs and other sort of additives we didn't want to make up for the fat. And people to kefir, as I mentioned, is quite common. Many people may not have actually tried it or think, oh, it's a little bit too sour for me. Start mixing it in with the yogurt. It has at least five times the number of microbes that your yogurt has. And then artisan cheese is good. And then you've got the non-dairy ones, which are important. So you've got all the kimchi, the krauts, which have 20 different types of fungus and and microbe and they're really good. You can just have tiny amounts on them. And of course, I'm a big lover of kombucha, which is now all over the place. Some better than others. Beware the big commercial brands that have long shelf lives and don't have that sediment in the bottom because they probably don't have much live microbe in there. But you know this is a, uh, an area that's that's a really, really exploding. And so there's, there's plenty of fermented foods people can buy, but also make them yourself. I started from scratch and it, it's really dead easy. And it's much cheaper if you want to do it yourself. And you definitely know you've got real microbes when they're growing in your fridge and you can smell them. And they go off.
0: I I remember my first kombucha and I did look at it and think, I was pregnant at the time and I was like, is this okay to drink? (laughs) But it's good.
1: It's, yeah, and to help your immunity and things. And it's a small shot of this every day. It's not like having a a binge once Mm -hmm. a week that's important. We know that these products do stay in the gut for a couple of days, but they don't live there permanently. So you've got to keep replenishing them for them to have a, a beneficial effect. And then the, the final piece of advice is around two things. It's reducing as much as possible ultra-processed foods. And so knowing what they are, knowing the difference between ultra-processed food and a lightly processed food, it's very, you can't totally avoid processing because even milk is a processed food under most definitions.
0: But is it all the emulsifiers and the stabilizers, et cetera, in the ultra-processed foods and the lack of fiber? Is yeah. that what's really driving them being a problem?
1: Yes, the lack of fiber, so there's nothing for the microbes to eat. Then to fill in the gap, because they've taken away all the husks of and all the, the external source of the grains, they're using extracts of the original products in sort of chemical formulas that they stick together in at high temperature and high pressure to make it look like cornflakes or something resembling the original. And then to get it to stick together, they've got these gums, these emulsifiers, these colorants, these additives, these preservatives, and an increasing number of these chemicals that you never see or heard of. And as we start test them on the gut microbiome, we find that many people have a bad interaction with them and that they do upset the gut microbes, get them to produce chemicals that they wouldn't normally produce, meaning that they're not inert, just like the artificial sweeteners, which we thought were the saviour, and everyone would get thin once they, they changed to uh, diet drinks, which they don't, is because they're having this negative effect on metabolism. And I recently just found out that saccharin and sucralose in one in three people cause a sugar spike. They do in me. And they shouldn't do, according to the manufacturer's safety, because they never test them properly. But So it's, it's knowing that how do you shift your food habits from buying saying a bread that looks very healthy on the outside but actually when you look closely the ingredients has got 20 ingredients and is made in a totally artificial chemical factory and the bread is all dyed brown and you know it's got nice harvest details of label and it's complete rubbish and hugely different to you know making your own sourdough or equivalent or having a a rye bread that packed with fiber that gets right to your your gut microbes so cutting back on the ultra processed foods realizing what they are realizing that yeah we can't avoid them completely and they are nice as an occasional treat I'm not going to be like the food police and I guess the final bit of advice is about fasting periods and this is a really interesting one that as we extend our fasting times overnight it helps our gut microbes to repair our our gut and going back to what our ancestors did I think is the other tip if you like and if you follow those things it doesn't really matter what else you do and you can do it in your own way or style doesn't matter if you're vegetarian or vegan or meat-eating or pescatarian you will be healthier
0: in a way it feels from what you just said that basically our narrative around food is just way too complicated just almost just strip it right back and eating those simple whole food ingredients, as you said, for the most part and feeling relaxed around what you do, you know, 10, 20 percent of the time would set you up for success for the long term of your life versus jumping on this diet and then this diet and then this trend and then falling on and off a wagon and feeling like yeah, it just you can't also, get to where you want to be. And it's
1: fighting what I call reductionism. Where, you know, what's the, what's the evil, evil compound of, of the week? Oh, well, this week it's lectin. You know, next week it's nitrites. Next week it's carrageenan. Next week it's, you know, you've got to see food in a much more holistic light, made up of 30,000 chemicals. And you can't reduce it to some one particular ingredient that just makes it easy to write a book about it. We're going to eat good stuff and bad stuff, but if you eat mostly good stuff, it's not going to matter.
0: And it is going to really impact the trajectory of your health.
1: It's going to, yeah, be crucial.
0: And I think that leads us on very nicely to your third piece of advice, which is realizing that we can all change and we have to be flexible. And I think that really speaks to what you were just saying, which is moving this narrative on, changing the way that we think about and talk about food. And, you know, it's okay to let go of past ideas.
1: Yeah, and I just take from my personal experience. I was, you know, an arrogant doctor, thought I knew what I was talking about when patients used to come to me and ask for diet advice and um, I was giving them the wrong advice. And I was also eating wrong things myself in the era of low fat and high carbs and doing what I think was healthy. And I realized now, you know, my healthy breakfast then of, you know, muesli and orange juice and low fat milk was just complete nonsense. And I've proven it now. So I think it's realizing that it, you know it's nothing wrong with admitting we got it wrong and it wasn't good for your body and that we have to realize this that the whole science is evolving so fast that ideas we had 10 years ago might well be wrong and in 10 years time we might chat to me and say well, what did i get wrong <laughs> 10 years ago and i think we just got to be much more open about it realize that it, it is perhaps far from being the most boring area of science which it had its reputation as why no doctors ever deign to go into it. It's the most exciting cutting edge of science. But in that, it's this huge complexity. And we as humans may not be able to deal with it without the help of technology and apps to find our way around it. The complexity of food, our guts, our own individuality, our personalization. I think we're going to need help. But first, we could need the humility to think we don't have all the answers just because... We've joined a particular food religion which, you know, might suit some people, but definitely not others.
0: I know it does feel like food is far too emotive and personal. And it's one of the reasons that I think it's so difficult to talk about is it almost feels like we've sense that people are attacking us on a very, very personal, kind of soulful level as opposed to a discussion around choices about things that are actually largely unrelated to us all as individuals. But I'm really curious, Tim, just in your own personal life, having made all these changes, do you really notice the difference on a day-to-day basis in your health and your well-being?
1: Yeah, I really do. Um, Not only did I, without ever counting calories, lose weight slowly over 10 years, but I've also learned that I can feel hunger without any problem, whereas before that was sort of unimaginable you know I had a sort of feeling of an empty tummy in the mid morning and I had to fill it now I can sort of my psychology has changed I can yeah I can eat or not eat and in a way embrace it realizing that you know what I eat does change my energy levels which I didn't focus on at all and yeah many of the things that I thought were good for me turn out not be good for me but also yeah realizing that you know I can be flexible and You know, you don't have to be absolutely rigid about it. You know, I virtually don't eat meat, but occasionally you go to Spain or somewhere and they're presenting you with their finest hams and everything and you just say, well, yeah, okay, it's not going to make any difference to my health to eat this because I I generally don't eat meat. I'm I'm doing my bit for the environment. I think we're all going to have some flexibility in order to sustain these lifestyle changes. And I think for some people, it's easy to be rigid. But I think for a lot of the population, realizing you can, you know, have a day off, cheat, whatever, doesn't matter as long as the over the course of that month, that year, your net choices have benefited your health, you know, the environment, and you're happy with them ethically. Yeah. Then I, I think that's really important.
0: I so subscribe to that. I think that we... I think if people take something away from this, I think the idea of looking at your health over decades, not over days, is so important. We're obsessed with a quick fix, a magic bullet, one answer that will solve everything, or one pill that you can take. And I guess to conclude, it would be fair to say that that just doesn't exist.
1: There is no magic bullet, no. But there is this idea, it's a change in our whole culture and mindset and a whole different reason to eat. And if you do that and you have a long-term relationship with your, your gut microbes, that's going to help you and it's going to help the planet.
0: I love that. Well, thank you so much, Tim. I so appreciate everything today. And thank you for sharing all your insights with us. My pleasure. So that was a pretty intense episode, I think. Tim shared the most extraordinary amount of knowledge with us really in a relatively short period of time. And I hope you feel really inspired and empowered to start thinking about the power of your gut health, the power that you and we all have to influence that. I think that's what's so exciting about gut health is that so much of our health therefore sits in our own hands. It's very empowering, although I appreciate also a little bit daunting. And it's always almost unnerving to hear that so many of these deeply entrenched narratives and societal norms like calorie counting should just be chucked out the window so I appreciate if you feel that way but I hope that it's been incredibly insightful at the same time. I have to say I loved asking Tim about this week's Fact or Fad. I'm just going to be honest before we get into it, this is one that I just can't get my head around and it's meal replacements so they're promoted as being both time-saving and nutritionally complete in liquid or powder form But what do we all actually think? Are they good? Are they not so good? Let's get what Tim has to say on the topic.
1: This is a very negative way for us to think about food and there are no long-term studies showing it's healthy. To move us away from the enjoyment of real food is about the worst thing we could possibly be doing to ourselves. So unless there are real extenuating circumstances... To replace meals. Um, I'm absolutely against it.
0: So, is it a fact? Is it a fad? Let's find out what Dr. Gemma Newman thinks. So, Gemma, this week's trend is one that I am personally absolutely fascinated in. I think I'm right in saying that it's about a $12 billion industry and it's a brand new industry, really, which is meal replacements.
2: Well, you say brand new, but SlimFast has been around for a very long time. And that is one of the main reasons in the past where people would consider meal replacements is for weight loss. And so I find it equally fascinating because it feeds into our ideas as a society about you know, what we should eat and why. What are your instincts on meal replacement as somebody who is so passionate about food? To be totally honest, and there's always
0: exceptions, (laughs) I'm really anti them. I feel very, very passionately that we need to learn to eat properly Mm. because we've got to learn to live sustainable lives. And I mean sustainable in the widest use of the word, which is that our lives are really busy. Many of us live in busy cities or busy towns all over the world. We're juggling all sorts of different things in our lives. And I think we're always looking for what's the easy answer or what could I do when I'm on holiday or when life's really easy And life isn't really easy so much of the time. Like, we do have complicated days or complicated periods of our lives. And I think we have to learn to find elements of nourishment that are sustainable every single day. And in that, I think we do need to learn to eat properly. I mean, you know better than anybody the fact that as a total population our diets are just nothing short of atrocious. And I I don't mean to be kind of too alarmist about it, but it's extraordinary what we're seeing. I mean, there was a really alarming report, I think it was last week, about the rise in cancer cases and the under 50s linked to our declining gut microbiome because we just don't eat properly anymore. We don't eat enough fiber, as we were saying the other week. We don't eat enough fruit and vegetables, about 60% of our calories from ultra-processed food. Our diets are appalling. And I almost feel like, These meal replacements, I think they're being positioned as this magic answer, this quick fix. I don't need to cook for myself. I can just get this and I can get everything I need. And I think I really struggle to believe you're actually getting everything that you need. But as I said, I also think we've got to learn to eat properly. We've got to learn what is a quick, easy meal I can have on a busy week? What's a 10 minute supper? What's a great choice when I'm out and about? What's a simple packed lunch? And I'm not saying everyone has to eat 100% whole food ingredients all the time but I do think we've got to learn to eat properly and not have 60% of our food from ultra-processed ingredients and I feel like this is just fueling the quick fix disconnect from cooking from real food
2: Yeah, Thank you for sharing that That um, was a bit of a that um, was soapbox your, It was, but I love an Ella soapbox rant <laughs> <laughs> It was a bit of a soapbox I love that, no, you, you have to be honest and I think You are right. I think meal replacement does take a lot of the joy out of food. And it's kind of sad when people feel that they have to rely on meal replacement in order to know what's good for their bodies. It's a really complicated thing, though, because... I have read studies to show that meal replacements are useful when it comes to weight loss. The direct trial, big trial, I think it was out of Newcastle, on type 2 diabetic patients who were having a very low-calorie diet. They used meal replacements. It was really successful. I really struggle with the idea of maintaining that way of eating. I think if you were going to do it for every meal, it would get boring very quickly. But even doing it for the occasional breakfast or lunch, I think... It's hard to live that way. And who wants to live that way? Having meal replacement shakes and bars rather than actual food. I think, you know, it's a nice way of, of ensuring that you actually have a really balanced diet if you learn how to cook. But again, it's nuanced. Not everybody is going to have the mental bandwidth for that. And people sometimes want to have a quick start way of being able to control the energy that they're taking in when they have been sort of habitually used to eating more energy than their body needs. So it can have its uses. And, you know, there are lots of people that say, well, my life is just too busy and I can't be bothered to learn how to cook, but I still want to get those nutrients. So for people who are in that situation and really want to do it, then go for it. But as you say, I don't think it's something that should be marketed as a, this is going to be a real game changer. This is what everybody should be doing because it's just kind of much less fun too. Yeah, I worry
0: that it fuels are on a bandwagon off a bandwagon culture which is so deeply entrenched I think in our society which is kind of okay I'm being quote-unquote good and you know I'm not eating these sorts of foods or these sorts of foods and then you kind of have a blowout and then you go back on meal replacements and it just it's not good I don't think it's good for your mental well-being in that sense and you know, it's bigger questions, but like, how do we really build fundamental building blocks of self-esteem and self-worth that we are worth taking care of and wanting to do that for our bodies? It's not to say you could never have one, but I think if we're starting to rely on them. Yeah. And I'm really curious your sense as well, because if you look at the ingredients, it's impossible to have a full meal pulverized and put on an ambient shelf, you know, to be shelf stable without adding various different preservatives. You know, lots of them got lots of emulsifiers in. Yeah. And again, we obviously are now starting to see the research to show that ingredients like emulsifiers are, are really detrimental to our gut health, obviously key to our total well-being.
1: Mm. So I think
0: I'm also not convinced that in time the science is yeah. also going to come out. As you said, that there'll be benefits, for example, in very specific health cases of needing to control calorie intake or weight in a very quick way way and I can see absolute merit there but I see that as a very very medicalized and supervised approach with this versus an everyday person out technically leading a healthy life and using these as shortcuts. I'm just not sure that in a few years time the data will be So kind to the ingredients that they include?
2: Yeah, I think time will tell. You're right, there are some artificial ingredients there to help preserve the product and maybe boost the nutrient availability given that it's got such a long shelf life. And there will be differences in quality as well. Like you say, some products boast meal replacement, but they don't live up to the expectations. You have to look for at least three grams of fiber in a shake for example and the protein content should be higher than or equal to the carbohydrate content for example if you're going to be thinking about meal replacements and also they are low on calories like a lot of them will only have maybe 150 200 calories which is clearly much less than you would eat in a normal meal and so again doing that long term may actually be of a detriment when you're not necessarily looking to lose excess weight and you have to be careful about allergens too with these things especially Actually, if you have lactose intolerance, for example, you have to check what the ingredients are. Emulsifiers, as you say, may be detrimental to the gut microbiome. So, yeah, there's a number of nuanced issues with them. But I think the bottom line is that they're kind of boring. They take the joy away from eating and they remove those social aspects to food, like community. But it is effortless nutrition and it could save money for some people. There's no prep involved and it does help with portion control. So I think on balance, it's something that some people will find useful some of the time. But as a way of eating, I think it's um, it's it's really quite depressing.
0: So would you class it as a fact or a fad?
2: It's a fact for a few people in specific circumstances, but I would much rather see people eat real food.
0: Love that. Me too. 100 times out of 100. Good. I have to say that was probably my most impassionate response to a fact or a fad. Um, and I would love to hear what you all think as well. As always, just get in touch. It's either podcast at deliciouslyella.com or at deliciouslyella on social. Let us know if there's any other trends you want us to look at, any other topics or guests you want us to get involved in. And next week, I'm going to be back here talking to Dr. Nicole Lapera, who is incredibly well-known We're gonna be discussing how to truly live in connection with your body. So, a little bit different from this week, a little bit more holistic. I think you're all gonna get a lot from it. She's absolutely fascinating. And then, in fact, or fad, we're on another trend that I could soapbox about, which is the keto diet, and one I'm very excited to dissect with Dr. Gemma Newman. So, I will see you back here next week. Thank you so much for listening, for coming on this wellness journey with us. And as always, massive thank you to Curly Media, who are our partners in producing the show.